Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Kathy Wong, Associate Professor at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Kathy, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Kathy, our conversation today is about two interrelated articles you've written. The first is Deal Momentum, uh, which was published last year in the UCLA Law Review, uh, and I'll add a link to that in the, the liner notes. And then the second is Faux Contracts, which is forthcoming in the Virginia Law Review. It might be published by the time that this interview is released. Before we delve a little bit deeper, could you give the listeners an overview of the theme or the themes of these two articles, this idea that sometimes parties to a transaction, they sign documents that look and feel a lot like formal contracts, but they aren't actually binding and they aren't even necessarily intended to be binding. Yeah, so um, these papers, they're kind of two papers that form a set. So Faux Contracts builds off the actual interview notes from Deal Momentum and actually expands that with um, another set of interviews. So both of them focus on the idea that in complex business transactions, specifically in M&A, people use documents that aren't meant to be enforced. But once they sign those documents, which is also weird in and of itself that you sign documents that are not meant to be enforced, um, the parties generally abide by those terms. So the way I kind of think of it in my own head is that deal momentum focuses more on the preliminary part of term sheets and LOIs, and then vote contracts focuses more on the non-binding nature of these and takes into account this idea that there could be non-preliminary agreements that are also not meant to be binding. For folks who may not be as familiar with the, the transactional process, what are term sheets and LOIs? Yeah, so usually um, they are in lots of different types of business transactions. And before you sign what you think of as like a binding contract, right? So binding contract, you've got, you know, offer, acceptance, consideration. If you breach it, you get, you know, reliance or expectation damages. Um, Before you sign this kind of formal thing, often parties will enter into what's called a term sheet or a letter of intent or sometimes a memorandum of understanding. And this is just a relatively simple agreement that says, in general, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a joint venture. It's going to be, you know, we're each going to invest this much money or in an M&A, you know, I'm going to buy you for approximately this much money in a stock deal or an asset deal. Um, And just like some of the big picture issues that are going to make the deal, like grease the wheels, make the deal actually go forward. So a kind of early stage thing. So it's kind of like an agreement to agree then. Yeah, you would say that. I think um, the best analogy, I think, um, in lots of different ways is to think of it like an engagement mm-hmm. um, before you actually get married. Oh, good. That's a good analogy. Uh, there, it's a, a step forward, <laughs> but you, there's always the, the possibility of, uh, of, of stepping back uh, as well. Uh, you know, s- stepping yeah. back from the world of, of M&A and maybe other high-end transactions, um, it's possible that people might enter into agreements that are non-binding and that aren't intended to be binding uh, in other contexts too. What made you decide to tackle this concept in the context of M&A transactions where we've got fairly sophisticated parties that are fairly well-resourced with legal and financial advisors and, and as you note in the pieces, have all of the abilities to create a binding agreement uh, and a, a quite precise one if, if they wanted to do that? 
Yeah, so there's a couple different reasons. So first, it's just kind of access to data and and writing within my own area of experience. So before um, I was an academic, I was an M&A lawyer. So I saw some of these and I also had access to people who would tell me about what I didn't know, right? So um, the other part is that I'm interested in this idea that sophisticated parties do these essentially handshake deals. So we're not, you know, super surprised if, you know, you and I decide that we're going to go get coffee and um, you're going to give me some advice about whatever, renting houses in Palo Alto, and I'm going to buy you coffee, right? Like, we're kind of comfortable with the fact that regular human individuals will enter into these casual contract-like things. Um, And that's not too interesting, I think. I think it's much more interesting that sophisticated parties with millions or even billions on the line would actually think about writing something down that's actually not binding, right? And then actually being happy with the outcome or accepting the outcome of breaches or adherence and all of that. Or as as you point out in the articles, they, you know, it's not only that they're agreeing to a really big transaction, but they're expending a lot of resources uh, just kind of getting up to that point, whether that's legal, financial fees, or just the bandwidth that they're spending on on that process, the sort of internal capital that they might be using uh, to get toward that spot. And it's a, as you as you say, there's a lot higher barrier and a lot higher switching costs than, you know, if you and I are kind of casually agreeing that we'll go get coffee. Exactly. Um, so in a, in a material public company M&A deal, the definitive agreement, whether that's a merger agreement, an asset purchase agreement, or something else, will typically get filed with the SEC. So anybody can go on the SEC's website and, and look at that agreement. And, and those types of public agreements have been a pretty rich source of data for business scholars and just a lot of different areas and, and tackling a lot of questions. But your focus, uh, as I think you kind of allude to, uh, is on these preliminary agreements that very rarely get publicly filed. Maybe sometimes you see them uh, submitted in a litigation, but that's still pretty rare. Uh, you mentioned interviews. Uh, how how did you overcome this data barrier that these documents that you're studying aren't terribly public? Uh, could you discuss a little bit of what your methodology was and maybe sort of the, the cascade approach that you used? Yeah. So essentially, you're totally right that because these are primarily used in private deals and um, and, and largely these are used in private deals and not used in public deals because people don't want to file a preliminary thing like this, so they don't write it down, right? So if you're early in a deal with a public company and you're not sure if you're going to go forward, you generally don't write it down in a preliminary um, document because you don't want to have to file it. So, But they are used in private deals, and it is really hard to get information about this. I actually just had a student email me today and ask, like, so how do we do research on private companies? And I didn't really have a really good answer, right? There's some little databases about, like, private equity stuff and just, like, little things, but not... Um, not good comprehensive information. So how did I go about doing this? Essentially, what I did was I called people who I knew, who I had worked with, and interviewed them. You know, I asked them a set of questions um, that are meant to have them tell me about what these agreements are used for, what's kind of typical in the industry. And it really relies on A, knowing people, B, um, having people who will trust you to treat this information confidentially. Um, And then C, having them introduce me to other people who they think would offer um, a useful perspective um, who will also trust me because their friend told them to. So that's kind of the the trust cascade uh, approach that, that you used. Yeah, exactly. You note in, in these articles, particularly in, in faux contracts, that the contracts literature is 
pretty heavily enforcement focused, but that enforcement, whether it's through a formal process like a lawsuit or arbitration or it's a more informal method like an industry or reputational sanction is fairly rare. Now, under this kind of existing account, uh, a party to a non-binding contract or agreement might be expected to act opportunistically. Uh, let's say, for example, you know, I buy your company or I offer to buy your company for $100 million. You were talking to some other prospective buyers. You cut them loose. They go do different deals because they can't do a deal with you. And then now I, I sense that I've got some leverage to say, you know what, how about $90 million? You might still accept that $90 million, perhaps. You may not feel right. happy about it, but right. I, I get to buy you and I've, I've saved $10 million. And, and kind of the traditional account of a contract without enforcement is that I would follow that opportunity if it were to arise. But you've observed that to a large degree, that doesn't really happen, that parties stick to their non-binding agreements, even though the agreements aren't binding, they're not enforceable, they weren't intended to be enforceable. And when they do want to renegotiate a point, they work pretty hard to give the other side good reasons for that. Why is that? Yeah, so that's a really good observation. Um, I think there's there's two big reasons. So one is that parties are really entering into um, a preliminary agreement when they've actually already decided that this is the party that they want to engage in a transaction with. In M&A, like people I talk to would say like, you know, there's always the business reason has to be there for you to do this transaction. This is not, you know, M&A are not, you know, commodity transactions, right? So if I wanted to buy your company, if I don't buy your company, I'm there may not be another one out there that I'm really excited about buying. So I'm really motivated to I'm do enough investigation to decide that this is what I want to do. And then once I enter into this contract, I'm kind of like already at that point where I'm really sure. This is where that kind of engagement marriage analogy comes in again, right? So like by the time you are engaged to somebody, you probably have a good idea of whether you want to spend your life with this person. So whether or not the contract is binding is not really the thing that's motivating you to move on to the next step. Um, the other thing is that I think there is quite a bit of kind of institutional internal stuff at each of the deal parties that causes the deal to go forward anyway. So I had, um, I used to work with a partner who told me that, you know, um, a merger is like a marriage, right? After, if it's successful, you're stuck with these people at the end. So even if like the outside counsel may not internalize that feeling, um, think about like the people who work at the company, right? They're pretty motivated. The two clients are pretty motivated to be integrity players because if the deal goes through, they might be seeing a lot of each other forever. Part of the, the explanation kind of following on that is that that you've offered is that parties follow these non-binding contracts because a complex deal is a multi-step process. It's not a commodity transaction, as you pointed out. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, between kind of agreeing to a deal and getting to to the signing point of a definitive agreement. And then there's a lot of uncertainty between the definitive agreement and closing. And then as you you say, you know, there's probably, you know, a good potential of a lot of interaction for years to come. So so you point out that while parties may be one-off transactors, maybe I'm buying a company, but I don't intend to re-enter the M&A market for a while. Uh, maybe I, I think you point out the M&A market might not really ding me that much if I have a reputation for reneging on past deals. I'm still trying to build up a good reputation within the deal itself. Could you describe that concept of intra-transactional reputation, why it matters, and why it might help explain why parties uh, adhere more or less to the non-binding agreements uh, that they sign? 
Yeah. So that really builds on this idea George Triantis and Albert Choi have, which is that complex transactions are multi-stage in nature, right? So, and this is, it's, um, they're talking about multi-stage contracting, but I think this is even just like, there are more stages than the contracts reflect. So if you do an M&A transaction, let's say you have 100 open terms, and this time around, you've managed to kind of settle on 50 of the terms, but you still got 50 of them left, right? So tomorrow or next week or whatever, you're going to try to figure out some more of those. And then a few days after that, you're going to try to figure out more of those. And so it's a constant evolving, you know, several months kind of process by which you're trying to make these two companies combined. So um, unless you are literally at the end stage of the transaction, right? It's in your best interest to be somebody who the other side is, you know, happy with and believes that is a trustworthy person because you might be, they might ask you for something this time. And and if you don't give it to them, like tomorrow, you might have something you need from them um, that they are unwilling to give you. And this process of combining two companies is like, you know, you have the initial contract negotiation of, you know, a few weeks, um, you have some, this inter period where things could change and the parties could back out. You have in private transactions this post-closing period where you're not only working on the integration, but you might have indemnification or post-closing stuff. And so at every stage, um, you as like a living organic company that's still evolving and changing and and doing things might have a change of circumstance and and your counterparty might as well. And so the deal might change on the margins because of that. So it's in in everyone's best interest to be a little bit more flexible on the margins. It's it's a little bit like to maybe to borrow concept that isn't kind of a corporate law concept at all, but it's a little bit of a, a veil of ignorance kind of effect where yeah, exactly. Uh, where we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what issues are going to come up in a complex transaction um, between signing and closing and after closing, and so we're we're all a little bit perhaps timid about being too opportunistic because. Uh, we don't know whether we're going to actually benefit from that in the, the long run. Maybe uh, we can be opportunistic at, at stage one, uh, but then if that causes our, our counterparty to retaliate at stage one plus n, maybe we were a net loser there, and so everybody has an incentive to to play by the rules and, and behave as as best they can. I think that's totally right. You kind of mentioned a, a minute ago about kind of the role of, of an internal people. Of course, you know it's easy to think about companies as sort of atomic units as as two economic actors making a deal. But of course, uh, that's a, a convenient artifice. Real people, individual agents are the folks who are, who are driving the deals, whether that's internal people in a business development role, whether that's uh, people in a senior executive position, whether that's the deal lawyers, the financial advisors, et cetera. And a really interesting point that you make in Info Contracts is that a lot of these people are, they have a reputational, they have a professional stake in making the deal go forward and making the deal go forward largely consistent with the initial agreement for example, a deal lawyer doesn't want to develop a reputation as being somebody who encourages or facilitates a client to act uh, opportunistically because in the next deal that lawyers uh, may may have less credibility uh, with, with the same opposing counsel. Similarly, you know, financial advisors might have that same effect or uh, people inside the company, particularly if my job as a business development person is to source and get deals closed – uh, I don't want to have a reputation as somebody who has deals that are going to fall through at the last minute or that are going to cause uh, unexpected pain uh, to, to my colleagues. I wonder if that is a good story about 
uh, reputational concerns of individuals leading corporate parties to act with integrity in the deal process? Or is that maybe a, a not so positive story about agency cost where agents are conflicted, they're letting their own interest and their own reputational concerns prevent the principal from acting opportunistically, even if doing so might make the principal better off just in economic terms? Yeah, I think you could actually cut it both ways, and I'm sure it's actually really deal-specific and fact-specific. So I think you're totally right in that there's really two ways to think about it. One is that like maybe some business person at a company is pushing a deal through because they don't want to be the guy who has the third or fourth or tenth failed deal in a row this year, right? Um, so that's really an agency cost story. This deal's not so great, but they're kind of going through with it anyway. But you also see how having that person really support, like that person's fear of their reputation getting sullied can support kind of a smooth deal-making process that allows deals to go through. You can imagine a world in which people are behaving so opportunistically that deals really can't go through, right? One thing I like to think about is that contracts are inherently, they have to be incomplete, right? We can't actually um, anticipate all of the issues that might arise. And so trust fills the gap. Um, and whether that's trust um, based on altruistic reasons, or we have like this internal compass that we must behave well and with integrity in, in a way that the other party expects, and or whether um, that's just a manifestation of some other agency cost. Um, either way, those things can help to make a deal go through where parties can't actually contract completely. Yeah, there, there's maybe a little bit of a divide there where uh, it kind of maybe cuts in a pro-social, pro-market direction where if there is a base level of trust in the M&A process, uh, the, the private company M&A process, the public company M&A process, it makes the next deal a lot easier to get done even if the last actors uh, aren't engaged in the deal, um, whereas maybe uh, it, it leads to a uh, potentially some companies uh, doing a deal that they probably shouldn't. Yeah, but I actually, I mean, I kind of just feel like it would be really hard to get a deal done that you shouldn't get done at all, right? I just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, yeah, I, I think that would be hard. <laughs> right. I, I think that's I think that's a good point. You know, at, at, at the margin, maybe, you know, it's, to, to extend your, your marriage analogy a little bit, maybe you are rapturously in love with somebody at the kind of engagement stage and you, you get married or maybe you learn some things about that person that you're, you're not crazy about. It's maybe some bad habits, that sort of thing. And maybe it's before the marriage or after the marriage, but maybe they're not so severe as to sort of say, okay, well, we need to call this off or we need to, we need to get divorced or anything. So you just sort of uh, tolerate it, even though it may not be the, the best approach uh, or the optimal approach or what you thought you were initially getting, but you just sort of accept it because the overall package is, uh, is okay. Yeah, exactly. What are some of the key points that you'd like deal makers or lawyers or financial professionals or other people listening to this podcast uh, to take away from deal momentum and faux contracts? Right. So I think a couple of different things. So first, as I said, contracts, it's very, very hard to arrive at a complete contract, right? We like this this idea that we can actually anticipate all of the challenges that might be coming ahead. Um, but especially as deals get more complicated and, and long-term, like in an M&A situation, that becomes harder. Um, so it's important to just, I mean, things like having a good reputation or hiring the right representatives or approaching that negotiation with the right tone um, can really do a lot to 
fill the gaps, this kind of human factor that we don't often think about too much um, can actually make a big difference. Um, and then the other thing is that even in the absence of contracts, deal-making relationships can thrive, right? So term sheets and letters of intent are often not contracts or not the, you know, the parts that we care about and the parts I write about here are not contracts, but they allow deal-making relationships to thrive. Um, and then the final thing maybe is just that there's, um, to the extent there is any academic literature out there about term sheets and letters of intent, it tends to be, um, it tends to kind of lump all these different types of preliminary agreements in different types of transactions, you know, like VC investments or M&As, um, all sorts of different things into the same category, but industry to industry or even geographically, you should see quite a bit of variation. So as you enter into a new type of transaction in a new space or a new format, just to kind of do your research and make sure you're understanding how binding these contracts are or how people usually interact with them. Because I'm really talking about a very specific type of thing, right? So large, private M&A transactions. And, and so a little bit as as you use interview methodologies and this kind of cascade approach as your, your data collection method, uh, probably for somebody entering into a type of transaction or geography that he or she isn't familiar with uh, maybe some of the same sources of, of knowledge, uh, deal lawyers, financial professionals, perhaps, uh, who have kind of that local knowledge might be the folks to consult there. Yeah, exactly. Ask around and make sure um, make sure that you're getting, you know, the lay of the land and what the norms are, because it's actually very, quite norms-based. Our guest today has been Kathy Wong, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Kathy, thank you for joining us on the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much.